This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture that believers in Christ, freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone and united to Christ through faith alone, are gradually and graciously being conformed to Christ. As we speak, there are discussions in the Presbyterian Reformed and Evangelical worlds over the piety, doctrine, and practice of sanctification. What is the nature of holiness? Are we emphasizing it enough. What are the relations between justification and sanctification? These are the sorts of questions believers are asking, and these are the sorts of questions that we'll be discussing this season on Office Hours. The current controversy isn't new. The Protestant Reformation was a reaction to a particular approach to sanctification that developed in the medieval church. Even after the Reformation, it wasn't smooth sailing. John Fesco, professor of systematic theology and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California, is here to help us get some historical perspective on these issues. He's written widely on these topics, including the fruit of the Spirit and justification, understanding the classic Reformed doctrine, and the rule of love, broken, fulfilled, and applied. These and other faculty titles are available through... The bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's good to be here. Well, we're in a new season, season five of Office Hours, and we're talking about sanctification, new life in the shadow of death. It's always helpful when we dive into a new subject to talk to a historian to get a little background, get some context so that we know what we're talking about. We're not the first people to talk about sanctification in the history of the church. We're not the first people to be concerned about the doctrine of sanctification. In fact, it was a major issue through the whole history of the church, and today we want to talk a little bit about the Reformation, and then we'll see how far we get into the 17th century post-Reformation and the period of Protestant and Reformed orthodoxy. So, in the 16th century, as part of the Reformation, sanctification was a huge issue. Tell us about that. Give us some context. For example, what was Rome saying about sanctification, and how did that fit into the Reformation crisis? I think historically, we could say that the Roman Catholic Church believed in sanctification along with the Protestant Reformation. It's just that the problem was is that they merged the doctrine of sanctification with the doctrine of justification. So the idea here is that you're not declared righteous on the basis of an alien righteousness or the imputed righteousness of Christ, but by your own works, and as they typically would denominate the idea as faith working through love. And in particular, they put forth the idea that you were sanctified chiefly through the use of the sacraments, not so much the preaching of the Word, but rather the use of the sacraments as the sacraments gave you the needed grace that enabled you to be able to make greater progress and become more and more righteous. And so obviously, as you know, and hopefully our listeners know, that the Protestant Reformers objected to this idea on biblical and theological grounds. So when a medieval theologian said justification, which we understand to mean acceptance with God, what they meant was not what we think of as acceptance with God on the basis of what Christ has done for us, which is reckoned to us and then received through faith, defined as resting and receiving and trusting in the finished work of Christ. That's not what they meant. They meant the internal 
progressive transformation, intrinsic transformation of the person by an infusion of what? Of created grace, at least according to Thomas Aquinas. Essentially, what it boils down to is the infusion of a substance. Kind of medicine. Yes. Okay, so through the sacraments, of which by now, in the 16th century, according to the medieval church and would be confirmed by what would become known as the Roman Catholic Church, or what we think of as the Roman Church at the Council of Trent, there are now seven sacraments. Now, the laity wouldn't have access to all seven. In fact, no one has access to all seven, because if you're ordained to the priesthood, then obviously you don't have access to the sacrament of marriage. But still, there's this elaborate sacramental system wherein you're being infused with grace, and then It's up to you to cooperate with that grace. And so the Christian life is a pilgrimage, but it's a pilgrimage of grace and cooperation with grace. And as the Protestants saw that, how did they characterize that business of cooperating with grace? They characterize it in the sense that there's no ability for fallen people, fallen human beings, to be able to cooperate with the grace of God so that they could somehow merit their status before God. There's that medieval saying, which I won't quote in Latin, but do what is in you, and God will not deny you his grace. And there's this idea that everybody, on the basis of God's grace, but nevertheless everybody universally has this ability, and that if they simply do what is within them, then God essentially will look favorably upon their sincere efforts, and look favorably upon that, and bless you and help you along the way. So according to the medieval church, you're sinful, but you're not so sinful that you can't do your part. Correct. You have a part to do, and you're able, by grace and cooperation with grace. And so the Protestants would see that cooperating with grace really as a kind of works, and so they would use Paul's language, and they would assign that, and they would say, look, you've fallen into the same error that the Apostle Paul was criticizing. You've made acceptance with God contingent or dependent on works, even though—and this is kind of an important point to clarify—if we talk to Roman Catholics, if we read medieval theology, rarely will they say, well, it's by works. Occasionally, in a polemical setting, someone might say that, but officially, it's always by grace. So it's important that we understand what they mean by grace and what Paul meant by grace and what we mean by grace. So there's a big debate about definitions, but if it's down to our doing, in the sense that you have to do your part, and without that, it's never finished, further, part of the sacramental system is penance, and then you're given acts of penance, you're given acts of control which have to be fulfilled. And when those aren't fulfilled, your time in purgatory adds up, which led to the doctrine of indulgences, where the church essentially said, you can buy, you can pay for an indulgence to pay for, satisfy for the acts of penance and contrition that you didn't complete in this life. So you have this system of buying penances, which, by the way, is still happening, right? Just recently, Rome offered more indulgences. These are plenary, full indulgences, whereby if you do a certain thing. For example, most recently it was following all of the papal tweets faithfully and prayerfully. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. You were eligible for a plenary indulgence. In 2000, it was walking through an arch and in other times, and in fact, Rome still offers these indulgences for sale. So in some ways, nothing has really changed. So you have a system of indulgences and a system of grace and cooperation with grace. But who, John, in this life ever is fully sanctified? Uh, nobody. <laughs> I wish. 
But I mean, yeah, no, nobody, I mean, obviously save one person, and that would be Christ himself in terms of his perfect obedience, and therefore really in no need of sanctification in the sense that we are in desperate need of it. But nobody this side of glory, despite whatever so-called perfectionists would say that we could somehow become absolutely sinless in this life, this side of glory. So yeah, nobody. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So if it's a case that no one, and according to medieval and Roman theology, that would ordinarily be the case that no one in this life would be perfectly sanctified. And if no one is perfectly sanctified, and if God only accepts those who are perfectly sanctified, then no one ultimately in this life ordinarily is fully accepted by God. At least according to Rome, yeah, that would be right, yeah. So what's the crisis of that? Help us understand the existential, psychological, personal crisis that a faithful medieval Christian would have experienced and how that helped facilitate the Protestant Reformation so that the doctrine of sanctification was right at the heart of what helped create the Reformation. I think that what happens is that a person never has any real assurance as to where they stand. They could be ever so sanctified, but at the same time that all of a sudden they could fall into what Roman Catholics would these days call mortal sin, some sin that would place their just standing in jeopardy where they can lose their just standing before God, and all of a sudden they could be out, so to speak. And even if they are in, or at least in terms of in a state of grace, there's always that nagging question as to how much do they need, how many good works do they have to perform, and whether or not these good works are ever sufficient so that they could work their way or prevent themselves from having to spend time in purgatory. And even then, you also not only have the burden for yourself, but let's say you have loved ones that die and you have question about their status. So you want to maybe light candles for them, pray for them, purchase indulgences for them, if at all possible, so that you could try to secure their improved state even in the afterlife. So there's a total and complete lack of assurance because in the end, there's no real solid foundation upon which they can stand. And so the Christian life is really one of doubt and uncertainty, which ultimately doesn't really facilitate godliness. Now, Rome did have one particular sort of clever parachute, we'll call it, and that's the the doctrine of congruent merit. There are two kinds of merit in medieval theology. One is condign merit, and that's merit that is intrinsically worthy, that is spirit-wrought, that God has to accept. And the other is kind of a sneaky form (laughs) of merit, and that is a, a kind of of merit or class of merit called congruent merit. Now, Thomas said these were two aspects of the same thing. Other theologians put it differently. But this notion of congruent merit is that we do our best, and you were reflecting on this a moment ago, and then God looks at our best efforts, and he credits them with perfection. So Rome did have, and still does have, a doctrine of imputation, which is interesting because sometimes, you know, Protestants are accused of being morally sloppy and uh, having a doctrine of a fictitious righteousness a legal fiction, because we say that what Christ did for us is credited to us and received through faith. And so they criticize us and say, well, you have a doctrine of a legal fiction. You're not really intrinsically righteous. And we respond by saying, well, wait a minute. You're the ones with the doctrine of congruent merit. And what's being imputed to the believer in the case of congruent merit? 
It's the idea that their works, as fallible as they might be, so long as they're sincere, as long as you try as hard as you can, that whatever fault is in them, God will overlook that fault, and he'll look upon it as if it were completely worthy. The problem, of course, is that it's not really taking into account the perfect righteousness of Christ in any sense. It's instead God looking upon the works of the believer as being sufficient, not really the works of Christ. I suspect some Roman Catholics would say, well, it's because of Christ's works, but... He makes it possible. I mean, this is the Roman claim, right? And by the way, there are Protestants who talk this way, too, that all that Jesus did in his life and in his death was to make it possible not to accomplish, not to finish, so that when Jesus said, it is finished, they say what he really meant is, I've done my part, now you do yours. That's right. Yeah, no, you're right. Sadly, that's true both for Rome and for unfortunate portions of the Protestant Church. And how many times have we had conversations? I know uh, it wasn't long ago, I had a Roman Catholic lay person at my door, and she said to me, as we were having this interesting dialogue, I said, how do you intend to stand before God? And she said, I will say that I did the best that I could. I did the best with what I had, and I trust that God will accept my best efforts. So this isn't a theory. This is an operating doctrine among Roman Catholics. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right on that. Sad but true fact. And it's an operating doctrine among too many Protestants as well. How many folks in our own churches were we to ask them the classic evangelism explosion questions? If you were to die today and find yourself standing before God, why would he accept you? How many of our own people would say, well, I've lived a good life, I've done the best I could, and I think I'm a good person? Again, sad but true fact. There's that one interview, I think, that the White Horse Inn has done where they go around the Christian Booksellers Convention and ask people what the gospel is. And uh, sadly, you know, very few people at this convention of supposed Christian booksellers could not come up with a biblical answer. So yeah, it is rampant. And sadly, it's uh, the case that people just don't know what the gospel is and don't know what salvation is. And you and I as pastors, we've had that conversation with people. Oh, sure in the house, in home visitation, in the counseling office, and on the way out the door after the sermon. You've just preached what you hope was a clear sermon about free acceptance with God, and someone shakes your hand and they say, good sermon, Pastor. You know, I'm really trying, and I hope God accepts me. (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah. That's when you know it's got to be the grace of God that opens their ears, because (laughs) you couldn't make it any clearer, but yet they're just not getting the message. All right, when we come back, I want to talk about then what the Protestants did, how they responded to this crisis, and what they did with the doctrine of sanctification because the accusation is one of the consequences of the Reformation is to open the door to ungodliness and a moral sloppiness and disobedience. And then we'll just say, well, grace, grace. When we come back right after this, I want you to explain why that's not so. You're called to holy living, but how to grow in holiness. Come to Westminster Seminary, California's Transforming Grace Conference, January 17 and 18, 2014, to discover what the Bible says about growing in holiness and the Christian life. Join Mike Horton, W. Robert Godfrey, and others to learn how the same grace that saves you also transforms you. Go to wscal.edu slash conference 2014. wscal.edu slash conference 2014. Space is limited. 
Register today. Preaching is so important because it's foolish according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God's people. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. The Protestant response to the Roman Catholic confusion of the doctrines of justification and sanctification, where Rome had merged the two, was to distinguish them, not to separate them, but to distinguish them, and to say that justification and sanctification are joint benefits that we receive in Christ, but that they are different benefits, and that justification is our right standing before God based upon the imputed righteousness of Christ, as well as his suffering the penalty for the law in terms of our violation of the law that we receive by faith alone. And it is this alien righteousness, and this is an idea that both Luther and Calvin embraced and taught, it is this alien righteousness that forms the foundation of the Christian life, so to speak. In other words, if the medieval Christian did not have any assurance and didn't have a foundation because he was always wondering where he stood, well, this imputed righteousness of Christ was now the foundation upon which people could build the Christian life and could build, if you will, their holy conformity to the image of Christ. How do you respond to the allegation that in the beginning part of the Reformation, beginning with Luther and Melanchthon and Bootser and some of the earlier Protestants from the 1520s and 30s, and particularly with Luther, that there wasn't a genuine interest in sanctification? Because not only did Rome allege that, but so some Reformed people have also alleged that Luther and Melanchthon really didn't believe in sanctification, and that one of the great breakthroughs of the Reformed Reformation, the story goes, was to really value sanctification. Yeah, no, I think that, unfortunately, I don't know why the tendency goes this way in church history as well as in life in general, is that if you make a distinction, all of a sudden people assume that just because you're distinguishing one thing from another that you're separating them. It's like I tell my students, please distinguish my hand from my arm, but don't separate them. Uh, I, I, I like I like my hand exactly where it is. And I think that's the case with the early Reformation, is that I think that given the emphasis that Luther and other reformers, Melanchthon as well, Butz placed upon the doctrine of justification, the assumption was, well, they were obviously not concerned with the doctrine of sanctification. And in fact, I think this even led to an early controversy within Lutheran circles where Luther himself, if I'm not mistaken, actually coined the term antinomianism, and he labeled a group of individuals that followed Lutheran theologian by the name of Rudolf Agricola, who said that, well, the law has no place in the Christian life because we are under the grace of God and we no 
longer need it, that Luther vehemently opposed Agricola and the so-called antinomians, and he said that we are falsely charged with denying the importance in place of the law for the Christian after conversion. And Luther may not have labeled it what we now call the third use of the law, but he said, why is it that we have so many expositions of the Ten Commandments, and why do we have the Ten Commandments explained in our catechisms, and we refer the people in the churches to these catechisms, and we even tell people that, yes, God doesn't need your good works for your justification, but your neighbors need your good works, and so that we were to serve others by loving them and by doing good works. And this ultimately, at least for the Lutheran tradition, came to a head, as you will know, in the proclamations of the Formula Concord, where the Lutherans sought to resolve the controversies over these issues, where they formally and officially embraced not only what we now call the third use of the law or the normative use of the law, but they talked about the importance and the necessity of it. In fact, just to read a passage from it, it says here under the Article 6 of the third use of the law, it says, to explain and settle this dispute definitively, we unanimously believe, teach, and confess that although Christians who believe faithfully have been truly converted to God, that they have been justified or indeed freed and liberated from the curse of the law, they should daily practice the law of the Lord as it is written in Psalms 1, 119, and so on and so forth. And so here, you know, they talked about the importance and the necessity of the law and its abiding relevance for the believer. It was Philip Melanchthon who gave us the category, third use of the law. So let's back up and go through some of this so that everyone understands what we're talking about. So the Protestants said, listen, it's not necessary to sanctification to say that you have to be sanctified in order to be justified. Because the concern is that if you don't make acceptance with God contingent upon sanctification, people will not have sufficient motive. And the Protestants said, no, wait a minute, that's not true. That sanctification is, in a sense, a mystery. And that what Rome had done, what the medieval church had done, was to fall into a kind of rationalism. We'll guarantee the outcome, sanctification, by making acceptance with God contingent upon sanctification. And the Protestants said, no, wait a minute, Paul doesn't do that. Should we sin that grace may abound? No, may it never be. But acceptance with God is free. Nevertheless, we are morally, logically obligated to be sanctified, but we're also sanctified, the Protestants said, by grace. Mm-hmm. It's a free gift of God that he works in us through certain means. Sure. But nevertheless, it too is by grace, and it's the consequence of this free acceptance. So the Protestants had to distinguish the ways in which we use the law, because there was never a question whether we're going to use the law. It was always how. Right. So walk us through the three uses of the law. Sure. You have the civil use of the law, uh, which is where we find the law in just regular society that no matter where you go in the world, there are laws against thievery and laws against deceit and laws against adultery and so on and so forth. And so you find that civil manifestation of the law because it's written in the creation, written on our hearts, as Paul says in Romans two fourteen and 15. Then there's the second or the so-called second use of the law, which is the accusatory power of the law that shows us our inability to fulfill it, and it ultimately, with the preaching of the gospel, works together in concert so that it drives us to Christ by showing us the one who has fulfilled the law. But then there's what Melanchthon labeled the third use of the law, and this is something, as you noted briefly, that Calvin was reading Melanchthon and picked up this category or this term and embraced it and put it in his own edition of the Institutes, I think sometime in the, maybe the 15 
1540 edition, somewhere around there, where he picks up this category, and it's what's known as the normative use of the law. In other words, the law doesn't accuse us as it does, say, in our conversion, but rather it shows us what is expected of the Christian in living the Christian life, what is normative, what is standard, if you will, Christian conduct. And so the Reformation picks up this category. The Reformed wing of the Reformation picks up this category from the Lutherans, and Calvin picks it up as well. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And sometimes these things, just to add a layer of confusion, sometimes these uses get numbered differently. And so it's helpful to know, however they're numbered, we're talking about the same things. The pedagogical use, where the law is a taskmaster that teaches us the greatness of our sin and misery. That's the order of the Heidelberg Catechism, for example. Question two, what things are necessary for you to know that you may live and die in this comfort or live and die happily? And three things. First, the greatness of our sin and misery. Second, how we're redeemed from all our sins. And third, how we are to be thankful. And there you see what is sometimes called the pedagogical use is the first use and and the third use. So sometimes second and first are reversed. Calvin puts them in that order in the Institutes. So we just don't want the listener to be confused, but they can be ordered differently, but it's the same stuff. Right, absolutely. The pedagogical use, the civil use, and the normative use. And these were shared by all the Protestants in the 16th century. So there's never any question among the confessional Protestant traditions and churches whether the law of God norms the Christian life and whether the Christian is obligated to that law. All right, we've set a foundation and we've observed at least a little bit that there were some crises in the 50s where some Protestant theologians, particularly Lutheran theologians, began to say, well, listen, it's necessary for you to keep the law in order to be accepted with God because there was concern about whether people were really devoted to sanctification so that even after the Reformation, there were challenges in the 20s and 30s from the antinomians and even challenges into the 50s. And there were other theologians fiddling around with the doctrine of justification. Andreas Oziander said that we need to be indwelt by Christ himself for acceptance, and we won't go into all of that. But just to give the listener the idea that there continued to be struggles within the Reformation. In the 60s, by the 60s and 70s, there was a pretty solid consensus, however, across both traditions, Lutheran and Reformed, on the doctrine of sanctification. We may have talked about it a little differently, and there may have been more emphasis among the Reformed than the Lutheran. For example, the Reformed were more willing to say that we're justified in order that we might be progressively sanctified, and less willingness among the Lutherans. But in principle, we were agreed on a lot of those things. What happened to that consensus in the 17th century? Did everyone, particularly among the Reformed, remain faithful to what we had achieved in the 16th century? Yeah, I think that you had a large share of agreement that was reflected, for example, in the Westminster Standards, this large-scale codification of the Reformed faith. And the Westminster Standards weren't written in a vacuum. They incorporated other earlier confessional documents, such as the Irish Articles and various catechisms that members of the Assembly themselves had written. And in that, you see the idea of the third use of the law. For example, when they talk about that the law for the believer is no longer a covenant, but rather it is a rule for the Christian life. And though the standards themselves don't use the term third use of the law, that's where you find that idea, where the abiding presence and necessity and validity of the law in a post-conversion life for the Christian. However, I think that what happens, as you noted, is that very shortly thereafter, you had a number of what we will call neonomian theologians, or these are people that believe that Christ was a new lawgiver, a second Moses, uh, so to speak, and that, again, 
echoing very similar lines going back to the Middle Ages, that in terms of justification, you are initially justified by faith, but then you have to await the final outcome because you couldn't say that you were justified now because then if that took the pressure off, then what incentive is there to live the sanctified life? So let's clarify. This was happening not in Roman—well, it was, but you're not describing what's happening in the Roman communion. Right. You're describing what was happening in which communions? In the Reformed churches, and public enemy number one in this case was Richard Baxter, who was putting forth these ideas. That might be a little bit of a shock to the listener who only knows Baxter from Saints Everlasting Rest or the Reformed pastor and may have been given the impression that Richard Baxter's one of the good guys. But you're saying, uh, not so much. Right. It is one of those strange occurrences in church history where a theologian gets credit and is assumed or presumed to be orthodox on some of these other subjects because of his works in another area being so helpful. But the one subject that Baxter wrote the most on in his entire ministry was justification, and it was basically a merged view of justification and sanctification. And he earned a significant response from the orthodox, particularly John Owen, right? Right. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that you go and read Owen's work on Justification, which appears, I think, in Volume 5 of his collected works. And Owen is very gentlemanly. He doesn't really come out and name Baxter by name as explicitly as we would hope. But the sole object, really, of that treatise is to criticize Baxter's formulations there. And yeah, he does bring in Roman Catholicism and Robert Bellarmine at several points. But the main focus of his attention there was Richard Baxter. And it's because of this confused view of justification. And it's this idea that you had to use your sanctification in order to secure your standing before God, and that you could even lose your justified status, and that it had to await the final outcome of the final judgment. And what a lot of people don't even realize is that Baxter even objected, for example, to the idea of union with Christ securing, in any sense, your justification, as well as being the source of your sanctification, so that if you were in union with Christ before faith, according to Baxter, which means that he objected to the idea that you were in union with Christ in your effectual calling, that that position is one that he labeled as antinomian, as being against the law. And in the one hand, I can understand how Baxter would come to these conclusions. He was a chaplain in the army, saw all kinds of lawlessness. Unfortunately, soldiers aren't, <laughs> in wartime especially, aren't exactly the most morally upstanding individuals. They can blow off steam in a number of different ways. And so Baxter was gravely concerned. But where he makes the strategic error is in reformulating the doctrine of justification to incorporate the doctrine of sanctification and thus, in effect, destroying the foundation for the Christian life. And there were other places, other sources, where the balance of justification and sanctification that had been achieved by the Protestants was being nibbled away. The Arminians, the Remonstrants, they're working, in a sense, against what had been achieved. And then, just as in the instance of the initial Reformation— there had been an antinomian response. So too in the 17th century, just as the divines were meeting and working out what would become the Westminster Standards, they did so in the context of a real concern about antinomianism. So explain that a little bit. What happens is that, as often is the case, when you get a movement pushing on one side, there's a fierce swing to the opposite side where you 
pull the pendulum all the way to the other end so that because you had a number of these neonomian-type inclined theologians, there was backlash by so-called antinomian theologians where they wanted to reject this whole idea that the law regulated every single aspect of your life. And in fact, there's some artist's work that comes from that period where it shows a woman who is weeping over her theater mask and over her playing cards and over her dancing music as she has cast them off to the side so that there was a sense of legalism, I think, that was being brought upon English society by the neonomian theologians. And so there was this backlash. And so the Westminster divines were aware of it. And there were some theologians, for example, such as Tobias Crisp, who said, well, I'm going to push back justification really far back so that it can't be contaminated by human good works. And so I'm going to say that it's largely decided and you're largely justified in eternity past, but that the person actually becomes justified not at the moment of faith, but rather at the moment of Christ's uh, completed work. So he places the believer's justification prior to faith. And the Westminster divines received a number of complaints, especially even about the works of Crisp, and they rejected these teachings out of hand. And, and in fact, even at this point, there was what some scholars have called an antinomian underground, because you could be punished severely by imprisonment or fine, or even perhaps worse, for publishing such types of antinomian works. But when you consider the antinomian background and the context in which the Westminster divines wrote, the Westminster Standards, I'm constantly amazed as to the biblical balance that they strike in getting it right and getting the distinction correct between justification and sanctification so that they don't contaminate the foundation, so to speak, but they also don't mitigate the necessity and the importance of conformity to Christ. You and I both come to the confessional Reformed theology, piety, and practice from the outside— so we've made a self-conscious embrace of this understanding, this confession of the Scriptures. What difference has this confessional balance and relationship of justification and sanctification made for you as you've made that journey? Yeah, I think that it's so important because as important, say, for example, as the doctrine of justification is the article of the standing or falling of the church, the divines also give a significant attention to all of the other elements of the order of salvation, but sanctification in particular, so that it really helped me as I was studying these doctrines many, many years ago to maintain what is in effect a good biblical balance on these things, so that as you set forth the doctrine of salvation, you're not just going to latch onto one part of it, as important as it might be, but rather you want it all. You know, you want all of the benefits that come to us through our union with Christ and by faith alone in Him, so that you want justification, adoption, perseverance, sanctification, all of these things. So in that sense, it's very helpful, and it has been very helpful to me, and I hope that others would find it equally as helpful. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.